Good morning, church. Uh, good morning to our live streamers who are joining us online. Let's start off this morning with a little bit of good news, bad news. This here is good news, bad news for preachers specifically. The good news is the women's ministry voted to send you a get well card. Bad news, the vote passed 31 to 30, so it's kind of close. Good news, the elders accepted your job description just the way you wrote it. Bad news, they also formed a search committee to find somebody capable of filling the position. Good news, your women's softball team finally won a game. Bad news, they beat your men's softball team. And uh, good news, church attendance rose dramatically over the last three weeks. Bad news, you were on vacation. When is good news bad news? Now, so if you're new to us, we're in a sermon series this month called Headlines. Now, I take that from the word gospel literally means good news. Two old English words put together meaning good news. And it is. But there are other appellations that apply to the gospel. And so last Sunday, we were contrasting fake news with the good news, with the gospel. Today, I want to talk about bad news. When is the good news bad news? Because sometimes the gospel is bad news. Depending on your perspective, and you might say, well, Steve, that sounds blasphemous. Well, just hang with me a little bit. And I've got an outline on the back of your bulletin. I'm going to say four things about bad news this morning. And the first one is, the first responders reacted to the good news as if it were bad news. Okay, first responders reacted to the good news as if it were bad news. And by first responders, I don't mean firefighters and police officers. I mean the first audience to ever hear a gospel sermon. It, was, it wasn't preached by Billy Graham. It was preached by the Apostle Peter. And that sermon and the context is recorded in the book of Acts and chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with the verse or with the words on the day of Pentecost. So let me set the scene here just a little bit. The Jews during the time of Jesus had three great feasts, and they were pilgrimage feasts, so to speak. Every Jew and from every nation under heaven all over the world tried to make it to Jerusalem for at least one of these great feasts. And uh, Jesus was crucified during one of those feasts, right? Which feast was that? Passover. Jesus was crucified during the feast of Passover. You know, Jew Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, you remember him? I mentioned him last Sunday. Josephus recorded that in AD 70, uh, during one of the Passover feasts, there were three million Jews in Jerusalem. Now, that's a, that's a little tiny city, smaller than Vero Beach. But he estimates there were three million Jews. That's how the population swelled during these pilgrimage feast days. So Jesus was crucified at Passover. The next of the three great feasts was Pentecost. Pentecost was always seven weeks after Passover. And it would occur either in early, during March or what we call March or April. It varied, just like our Easter varies in time. Sometimes it's early, sometimes it's late, depending on the vernal equinox. You say, Steve, what's the vernal equinox? I say, I don't know, but that's what it depended on was the vernal equinox. So you can Google that and look it up. But regardless, so 50 days after Passover was Pentecost, always occurred on a Sunday. And so Acts chapter 2, Luke is recording what's going on here for this first gospel sermon. He says, on the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm just going to summarize what happens in the chapter. Luke records that the 12 apostles were all together in one place. Looks like they were somewhere around the temple courtyard, various rooms that surrounded the temple courtyard, and the 12 are all together in one place. When all of a sudden they hear a noise like a violent rushing wind. 
Now, there was no wind, but there was a noise. So the noise sounded like a violent rushing wind. Have you ever heard of a violent rushing wind? Yes, you are Floridians. We get to hear hurricanes every year. So some people say, you know, it sounds like a train outside your window. Well, that's, so this noise happened like a, like a hurricane, and it was right where the apostles were hanging out. So this great noise drew a crowd. There was already throngs of people at the temple, and they rushed to see what's this noise. There were thousands of people that came, who came to see. So the apostle Peter sees an opportunity, and he seizes the opportunity to stand up and preach a sermon. So the sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 2, and it's the first gospel sermon ever recorded. And Peter starts off, and he says, now, you guys remember Jesus, right? And they all say, yeah, we remember Jesus, because it had just been seven weeks since Jesus was crucified. And he said, Jesus was a, went around doing good, and God had testified to him with the miracles. And I said, yes, yes. And he, and he quoted prophecy. He said, David, who wrote the Psalms, David was a prophet, and he prophesied about the Messiah, that the grave would not be able to keep him in the ground. Yeah. And he said, of course, Jesus resurrected from the grave, and his tomb is empty right outside the gates of Jerusalem here. They're saying yes. And he said, we've all seen the resurrected Jesus. He says, Acts chapter 2, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Speaking of the 12 apostles, he says, we're all witnesses. We've seen the resurrected Jesus. Of course, Jesus had just spent 40 days making his post-resurrection appearances to various individuals and groups of people. So we said, we're all witnesses of this. So here was a vast audience of Jews. How long have they been waiting for the Messiah? 1,600 years. And this happens to be the very generation, Peter, Peter says, he came in your lifetime. And God proved who he was by raising him from the dead. Hallelujah, praise God, right? The audience must be over the moon with joy and excitement, you would think. But Luke records their reaction when they hear this in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Did you see that coming? <laughs> Cut to the heart. What is that? Is that, a, is that a Hebrew or Greek idiom that means happy and joyful? No, let me read you that verse in nine other versions of the Bible. They were deeply troubled. They were very upset. They felt very, very sorry. They were sick at heart. They were cut to the quick. They were stung in the heart. They felt guilty. They were acutely distressed, and they were crushed. Now I ask you, because you don't need a Bible college degree or a seminary degree. You don't have to read Greek or Hebrew you don't even have to ever heard of Jesus before to be able to tell whether or not they're reacting here as if this were good news or bad news. Bad news. They're reacting as if what they're hearing is bad news. Why is that? Why did they react that way? I'm glad you asked. Uh, I've got it. There's probably more than one answer to that, but I'm going to talk about at least two. Those would be my next two points. So number one is guilt. Guilt is the bad side to the good news. Guilt. Now, here's, here's one of the verses I left out. In uh, Acts 2.36, Peter said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So kind of good news that the Messiah has come. Bad news, you killed your own Messiah. You crucified him. And that would have been true, literally true, of some of the people in Peter's audience that day. Undoubtedly, some of them had been in that Jewish mob when Pilate said, Here's the man, what do I do with him? And they said, Crucify him. Crucify him. They had been the very ones that said that, so they felt guilty. Not everybody in the audience that day. I mean, some of them came from far away. Maybe, maybe they had heard Jesus 
his amazing teaching. Maybe they'd seen some of his miracles and they had not believed. So they were guilty of unbelief. Others would have realized that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitutionary cross. Death, rather. Jesus was a sin bearer. So he's taking upon himself other people's sins, sins of the world. So they realized it was their sin, in a sense, that put Jesus on the cross. So, yeah, they were cut to the heart. They were crushed out of guilt. All right, here's another bad side to the good news. The second one is judgment. Judgment is the bad side of the good news. Now, let me read another part of Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2 for you. And in this part, Peter is quoting the prophet Joel. So Joel, is in, you read in the Old Testament, you got the prophet Joel. And Peter quotes from Joel in his sermon. He says, now this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, this right here is symbolic language of judgment. The day of the Lord means a day of judgment. In Old Testament times, there were many days of the Lord. They were what would we call temporal judgment. And so I'm contrasting that with the final judgment. End time judgment, that's coming. But there were temporal judgments that were limited in scope and geography and place. And so God would judge Egypt or he would, he would judge Babylon or he would judge Assyria. He would judge Judah and Israel. These all happened in Old Testament times. When you read your Old Testament, he usually did that by bringing a foreign army against them and they were conquered by that army. But before he did, God often sent a prophet to whatever nation was being judged to warn them, judgment is coming. And these prophets would use this kind of symbolic language. It's a formula communicating judgment. Let me give you a couple of examples. When God judged Egypt, for instance, he sent Ezekiel, the prophet, and Ezekiel said this, speaking for God, when I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken the stars. I'll cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. That didn't happen literally. It's, a, it's symbolic language that means what? Judgment is coming. When God judged Babylon, the nation of Babylon, he sent Isaiah with this prophecy. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So when Peter quoted Joel and said, the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord, his audience, who were Jews and knew their Old Testament, understood exactly what he was saying. He was saying, judgment is coming on this nation. Jesus predicted it. Jesus, before he died, he said all the blood and the guilt of the past generations of Israel over the centuries is going to come to rest on this generation. This generation. They were judged because they had crucified and rejected the Messiah. And so Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, he says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. We read in Jude 14, the Lord is coming to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things that they have ever done. So what are we, what are we talking about this morning? We're talking about when is the good news bad news? And the good news is bad news when there is guilt and judgment. Those are kind of the bad side, the good news. But, you know, and it's one of the things that makes the good news good, though, depending on your perspective. And I said all that just to get to this. We must face the good in order to get, or I'm sorry, I'm saying that backwards. We must face the bad, rather, in order to get to the good, okay? We must face the bad in order to get to the good. 
The good news is not going to even seem like good news until we face the bad news. So when Peter had preached this sermon, Jesus is the Messiah, you killed him, you're guilty, and you're under judgment, this audience was cut to the heart, they were crushed, and they cried out, what, what do we do? What do we do? And Peter's answer is in verse 38, Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Now, that's not the whole verse. Actually, that's just the first half of the verse. Peter goes on to say, and you need to be baptized. And, and I'm not saying, I'm not talking about baptism today. So I believe in baptism, and I'll mention it next Sunday. But uh, before you get to baptism, you got to go through repentance. So I don't want to rush past the repentance this morning. I don't want to whisper repentance and shout baptism. Let's just, let's camp out right here for today, and then we'll get kind of the brighter spot next Sunday on Easter Sunday. But the word repent literally means to turn. It's to uh, recognize our sinfulness and turn away from that. We're turning away and we're turning toward, turning away from God, uh, sin rather, and turning toward God. I often think this, is, this may be the hardest part of becoming a Christian. Now I understand most of us are Christians here today, so we've already done this. We've, we've done repentance and we've been baptized. But even as Christians, we still need to repent from time to time, right? And we're not perfect yet, so we still need to have some repentance. But let's understand that we have to face this about ourselves. And this is often the hardest part, maybe, of conversion because a lot of times we just don't think we're that bad. This is why people object to hell. Doesn't that seem like overkill, eternal suffering? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but yeah, I mean, I've told some white lies maybe. Maybe I cheated on my taxes one time. Maybe I kicked that dog, but he kind of deserved it. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad, really. Well, uh, we need to face the truth about ourselves and see ourselves and our sin the way God sees it. Or the good news is never going to seem like good news. So a few years ago, I was watching a television series. It's fiction, and uh, it's about these two drug dealers. I mean, they, they were making meth, and one of them was an addict, and the other was just a dealer. They were both dealers, but one was an addict. And the addict had started to get into recovery, and he was talking to his drug dealer friend about his recovery. And he said, you know, I'm learning things about myself, and I take responsibility for what I've done and who I am. And his friend said, really? Who are you? And uh, the guy in recovery said, I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. And I thought, that's one of the most poignant scenes I've ever seen in anything on screen. Because he was a bad guy. I mean, he had... He'd made drugs, he had sold drugs, he'd gotten kids hooked on drugs, he was responsible for people's death. And he said, you know, he was a young man in his 20s, but he said, you know how you grow up and you watch TV and you watch movies and they're all telling a story and there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and you, you identify with a good guy, you want to identify with a good guy, the hero, the superhero. He said, you know what I realized? I'm not the good guy. I'm the bad guy. Have you ever had a bad guy moment in your life? Have, you, have we ever come to the point where we look back at our life and we look at some of the things that we thought, thought about doing and actually done and said, you know what? I don't know. How, how did I do that? I can't believe I did that. Some of the deception, some of the people that we've hurt, some of the laws that we've broken, some of the rebellion against God, that doesn't even seem like me, or it's certainly not what I like to think 
I am, but there it is. I did it. There's something seriously broken in me. There's something bent in me, and, and I, I can't fix it. Maybe God can fix it, but I can't fix it. My goodness, I'm the bad guy, or I'm the bad girl. We've got these two sides to us. We have the side, here's what I like to think myself Here's what I portray myself as, and here's what I want to be. And then we've, and we've got this other side over here that's dark and sinful, and they coexist. We say, how does this coexist in the same person? Remember David in the Old Testament? Now, David, is, he's described as a man after God's own heart. He wrote the Psalms, these beautiful worship songs, loves God, follows God, obedient to God, full of faith. David. And David is the one who saw a woman, a married woman. He lusted after her. He's got wives. He can have anybody he wants, but she's married, and he sins for her, and they commit adultery, and she gets pregnant. So he wants to cover it up, and he arranges to have her husband killed in a battle. And then he marries her, and he wants to keep it all on the hush-hush. Nobody knows. It's a big secret. And you know the story. God sends a prophet to David, Nathan, and Nathan tells David a story. And in Nathan's story, there's a good guy and a bad guy. Now, it's a made-up story, but David doesn't know that. It's a good guy and a bad guy. And David is so incensed. The bad guy's really bad. And David said, that bad guy deserves to die. And David can make it happen. He's the king. He wants to know who it is. And remember what Nathan said to David. He said, David, that's a made-up story. You're the bad guy. You're, you are the man. You're the bad guy. And he held that mirror up, and David looked in that mirror for the first time, and all the deception is stripped away, and he sees himself for what he is. And he's crushed. He's cut to the heart. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The we there. Paul's talking about himself, talking about the Jews, talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about us. It's not a couple of white lies or cheating on our income taxes. We, were our, we have been, we've all been in the same place. We're all part of the same human race. Every heinous act that irritates us and bothers us about other people, given the right circumstances, we are capable of. We are all by nature objects of God's wrath. We stand in the path of the wrath of a holy and righteous God, and that's exactly where we deserve to be. Or at least, and what I'm saying is, I'm not saying we're there right now. You're a Christian, you're forgiven, praise God. That's what makes the good news so good, right? But I'm just saying, that's where we've all been. And we, got, we have to face this about ourselves to get to the good. Let me read you some selected verses from Romans chapter 1. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Their lives have become full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless and they have no mercy. Now, here's my question. 
Do you see yourself in there? I'm in there. Oh, I'm in there more than once. You say, really, Steve? Well, which parts of that apply to you? Well, that's none of your business. I'm not going to tell you that. But I'm going to tell you that I'm in there. And I'm not saying any one of these is any worse than the others. All just one big category of sin. But this is holding up. God's holding up. The, the Bible calls it the mirror of God's Word. He wants us to see it ourselves, how we really are. He cannot help us until we see ourselves how we really are. We will not seek his help. We won't ask for his help. Why do I need forgiveness if I don't even think I'm all that bad? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Now, this has been a little bit on the intense side. So I want to I wanna let, let's lighten it up a little bit. I'm going to show you a little clip here, a movie clip. Uh, and this is, uh, in this scene, you've got two guys who are going the wrong direction on an interstate highway, okay? And so it's about a minute long, let's roll that clip. Okay, so there you go. You're going the wrong way. This is what repentance is. When we're going the wrong way, God wants us to turn around and go in the other direction. And the people who warn us of that warn us not because they hate us or because they're judgmental or earlier than now. They, you know, we're being warned because somebody cares about us. The couple that was warning uh, these two guys on the road, what they were making fun of them and demeaning them and laughing at them and in our culture and society today if you stand up for what the word of god you're going to be called a hater you're going to say you don't have any love you're judgmental that's not it if we if if we didn't care we wouldn't say anything at all so whether the warning is coming from what we read in god's word or it's coming from a friend or from some teacher some preacher understand this is coming from love you see somebody who's heading for destruction you say if you care about him you say something about that and god cares about us so all we're saying here so this is what repentance is all about and again i understand most of us are christians here today we've made this overarching decision to repent but even as christians we're not instantly perfect i mean we still struggle with sin and temptation and there may be still things 
in our day-to-day life, we got to look at it and say, I'm going the wrong way. Maybe God is calling us. I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn around and go in the other direction. C.S. Lewis said, uh, the most progressive thing you can do, if you're going the wrong way, the most progressive thing you can do is stop, turn around, and go in the other direction. Folks, that's what makes the good news so good. That's why we have to go through the bad news first. But when I realize what I deserve and what I've done, and that God over here on the other side of repentance, in the work of salvation, that is baptism, he did a work of salvation on the cross, and then he does his work of salvation on each one of us in baptism. I'll talk about that more next week. He, he is offering us forgiveness and healing to restore and heal that brokenness within us that we cannot heal. When we realize that, we realize just how beautiful and good the good news is. So we go through the bad to get to the good. Our Father in heaven, we uh, are before you this morning very humbly, humbly, like uh, the, the fellow who went up to the temple to pray and got on his knees and wouldn't even look up to heaven and just said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We know that's the prayer that you hear. You don't hear the prayer of the guy who says, oh, Lord, thank you for not making me like other people. I mean, we are like other people. We're in the same predicament. Our sin has put us there. There's nobody any better than anybody else. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, that people like us, you love us. In spite of our sin, you love us and sent Jesus to die for us so that we could have forgiveness, restoration, and the promise of eternal life with you in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.